Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Paul. And this is the Hi-Fi Sci-Fi Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 8, A Matter of Honor. Jean-Luc, Jordy Specs, mysteries on the holodecks, asteroids, triple droids, telepathic betazoids, transport a deadly claw, visitor from L.A. law, photons, no Kirk, Captain has gone berserk, shuttlecraft, Council Troy, Dr. Crush's little boy, Klingon rights, parasites, new heights, phaser fights, Data's head, Tasha's dead, Wyke is hanging by a thread, celebration, transformations, everyone to battle stations. Our very special guest star is uh, the most honorable human uh, we could find. Not a true Klingon, but he is Klingon in here. And you can't That's see right. it because it's a podcast, but I'm pointing to my heart. Uh, <laughs> Nick Baker is joining us for this discussion. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks you. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, Excited to be here. Nick, we go way back because, uh, of course, way, way uh, used to host a podcast with uh, a couple of other gents. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was like old times. This is uh, just like old times. Yeah, this, this is part of the the long con. I've successfully um, gotten two of the Midwest nerds back together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Paul is uh, is is just arranging chess pieces on his board, <laughs> 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 slowly but surely. Um, guys, this episode, uh, there, I have a lot of notes here. I could talk forever, but I think it um, I think it kind of works to let our guest lead off with with at least something an impression of the episode or just overall you know feelings uh, about the episode or, you know, the standard mm-hmm. why'd you pick it you know well this episode in particular has a lot of insight into klingons and their mm-hmm. culture since we haven't really seen a lot of that before like uh really gives into how like it goes into how the ship operates and how their culture is and how like women are and you know general Klingoniness of it uh and i thought that was good and riker's a badass so yeah Bonus it's points. it's an impressive amount of uh world building in this episode because mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is only the second time we've seen klingons in the next generation um well, we, well excluding Worf. well excluding yeah. Worf. we see him every yeah, week yeah. he's yes but but klingons uh in their own society because we saw yep, yep. um we had Heart of Glory, which was uh, also a lot of fun um, in the first season. Um, but this episode, uh, you're right, Baker. Like, for me, I was completely blown away by um, all of the scenes which take place on the Klingon cruiser, the Paw. Um, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's just, it's shockingly consistent. Uh, this show aired in the, the on the 6th of February, 1989. And you could pair this with some of the Klingon episodes from like Deep Space Nine and it would just yeah I was gonna say the same thing late Deep Space Nine the same stuff is there like they stuck this landing so well on this first well first or second go at it um yeah and they they stuck with all of it it's great there's um there's that scene where Riker is um is is prepping 
and he's got you know the 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 tradition of the feast before the transfer is what Picard calls it, but it's really just him acclimating to Klingon cuisine and so many of the different like th- dishes that they throw out there um, are definitely like they become canon like those are recognized you know you've got your rokeg blood pie you've got your gach you've got uh, you know all gach. these different dishes yeah. <laughs> you know and even even the joke about best served live like this is the episode where where that's established so yeah. I, I mean I I was absolutely flabbergasted at how how much this episode just really really establishes what what modern Klingon culture looks like and we mentioned a little bit of that the first time that we talked about Klingons in TNG but this one even more so you get them on their own ship amongst other Klingons in in just day-to-day operations and it just it all falls together I mean I think well and in, in, in the um, was Hardwick Glory um, one of the things with that those were Klingons um, separated from society right they were they were yeah. fleeing um, and we only got to see them on the Enterprise. And, and like you've been saying, this is now um, not Klingons coming to the Enterprise like what we have in Worf every week, um, but someone from the Enterprise going into their culture and being the outsider in that culture the same way that Worf is the outsider um, every week, right? Which, which allows you to see a much different side of that. And it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about this episode, realistically. I, I, I'm, I'm going to tip my hand and just say I really like this episode. Yeah. Yeah, it. Um, I wrote a note here as I was watching through it because what we can kind of you know go into the the nuts and bolts of how the episode works, but but essentially, really, the the heart of this episode is kind of um, pushing the idea of cultural differences and how they are a strength rather than a weakness. Like this is really kind of getting at the core of Federation ideology and and the whole infinite diversity and infinite combinations because. There, the A plot and the B plot of this this uh, episode are both about this what they call this officer exchange program. So it's the program that that was set up, and that's how Riker gets to be on the Klingon ship because the Klingons, being the allies of the Federation, said, "Sure, you know, send us an officer." Um, but it also brings uh, Mendon to the to the Enterprise. And he's there to not only be, you know, uh, a fish out of water as well, but he's also, he's there to, to literally be an explanation as to why this plot wasn't resolved in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> because, <Right. laughs> and I thought that was, it was actually kind of a nice, clever way to get around what could easily be a plot hole um, uh, about the, the thing that has infected both of the ships. But I thought this was really a clever way to, like, go into what the Federation does, which is which is talking about bringing people together, bringing disparate societies and cultures and, and making them gel. And, and that's this episode approaches it from two very different cultures. But in a way, at the end, the resolution just kind of reinforces that idea that we're stronger together. And I thought that was that was really pretty cool. Baker, who's your favorite Benzite? Mordok or Mendon? <laughs> well, oh man, Mordok probably. Mendon's just kind of a dick, you know? But classic Benzite, am I right? That is a Benzite trait. <laughs> That's right. The, By the way, there's like a semi like racial overtone in the opening scene when they're coming onto the onto the ship. Right? Uh when Wesley's mm-hmm. like, Oh, hey, Murdoch. And he's like, well, I'm Mendon. Like, oh, you all look the same. It's like, come on, man. Yeah, yeah, he even says something like, how do you tell yourselves apart? Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost that same conversation Data had where it's like, well, I'm me. 
Yeah. The other one's not. <laughs> yeah. At, at any point, I mean, Mendon could have just been like, how dare you? Because Wes, like, immediately, yeah, like, oh, well, you look, you know, really, really similar or whatever. And then to follow that up with how do you tell each other apart, I'm like, Wes, your whole leg is now in your mouth, buddy. Like, just, just <laughs> chill. <laughs> like, slow your roll. And somehow yeah. they still wind up being friends because Mendon is apparently the most patient uh, person in the in the whole universe. Hindsights <laughs> do seem pretty nice, right? Yeah, yeah. they're pretty nice. Yeah. A little bit too like straightforward honesty that most people hate, but you know, not bad dudes. <laughs> I, I did I did look up to see if it was the same actor because I was like, man, they they had to have had the same actor, um, and I guess they did, um, largely <laughs> because they had already done the prestheses to to make that suit. Oh yeah, and it fit his head. <laughs> Um, so they called it nice. back to do the same thing. It's like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. But Yeah, I found a, a quote about that. John Putsch is the name of the actor who played uh, Mordok and then Mendon. Um, and when he gave an interview about being cast uh, again, he said, uh, this is a quote, I was all very impressed by that. I thought, ah, they love me. They love me. Uh, what they really loved was that it was me because they'd spent all that money making the blue head and it was form-fitted to me. I don't fault them for that. I would have done the same thing. But it's funny how you're naive about these things when you're just an actor. Like, I, I thought, <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, I kind of like that yeah, guy from insight. that quote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, yay, they love me. They really love me. No, they love the shape of your head because it saves oh, them money. Yeah. Phrenology. <laughs> They're like, what are we, what are we going to do? Uh, we... We have the same guy. How are we going to explain it? Uh, they're from the same geostructure. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, that sounds right. That sounds science yeah. fiction-y enough. Geostructure. Yeah. Go with it. Exactly. <laughs> um, even this episode from the start kind of uh, it caught my attention because I thought um, that cold open where they're on the phaser range, um, and they literally just, like, it's Riker There's and Picard... Just, just skeet shooting on the face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel like skeet shooting. Yeah. <laughs> when I watched it, I was trying to figure out like what it really felt like, and I, and maybe that is what it is, but maybe it's just the phaser rays from from Star Trek. It, it felt like they were ripping something off, but maybe maybe it's just memories of that. Yeah. Memories of you skeet shooting in the fields. The uh, <laughs> the scene right after that, where um, you know, Riker is. This is such a strong Riker episode, like for a number yeah. of reasons. Um, and this is the first episode that I can remember where um, where Riker is really 100% right, that he's really pitch perfect. Yeah, this feels like the Riker that we eventually know, um, and, and, it, it, and it comes almost strangely um, juxtaposed against a lot of these other episodes where he has not been. And, and it's almost like the Klingons in this episode, that they, they nailed Riker the same way they nailed the Klingons here, and then it worked. Yeah, yeah. He um, he succeeds in this episode by being uh, adventurous because that's originally how he gets into it. He he literally says, "I want to do this because you know no one's ever done it before," and so mm -hmm. yeah. But then he takes it seriously. He does his homework, and really like he's clever, but he's also uh, he builds alliances through his personality, and like it's literally a trait that in later episodes of TNG will be used to describe him that his his casual manner his his ability to like joke and be natural with his crew is his greatest strength and it's really cool to see that develop I think because um, it draws such an interesting contrast between him and Picard 
they're both they both effect become very effective commanding officers but both have a very distinct style and i feel like this episode is like the the real genesis of seeing like riker's style of of command he has a gravitas he has a certain air of command about him oh yeah total but, swagger but it's completely different from picard picard's the elder statesman and and riker is the is the guy that you you can't help but like you know mm-hmm. um yeah you you wouldn't picard wouldn't be tackling a klingon or um all the things that 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 riker sort of does freely in this episode right yeah. exactly yeah um and and just it's another strong wharf episode too because wharf is uh instrumental in in putting up some backup plans that that bring riker back to the ship ultimately yeah wharf doesn't have a lot of uh like lines in this episode but like he all of his like few seconds on screen are just gold. Like mm-hmm. his interaction with uh, Mendon are always just like on point. I laughed out loud so many times. Yeah. And then yeah, setting up the like uh, locator beacon or whatever it was. Yeah. What um, did What did you guys think of uh, Worf and Mendon? Worf as the uptight supervisor. <laughs> I thought it was great. It's like yeah, perfect. Yeah. It just yeah. It's another one of those things that just really kind of worked, and it's hard to describe exactly why it i i think it all clicked for me when uh when wharf delivers the line you may impress me oh yes (laughs) (laughs) i I mean it's like we've all been in those meetings (laughs) right exactly and it almost feels like wharf is is playing it over the top for um I was going to say Mendon. It, it is Mendon. Okay, not yeah, Mordon. Yeah, yeah. Mendon's benefit that, like, Worf wouldn't be doing this to, say, Wes or somebody, but, like, he realizes that um, this is almost something he gets to do only because um, Mendon is here on this exchange, and he wants to give him a, a snippet of um, what it might be like to, to be in this structure. It, it's It's a very effective way, I think, to even give Mendon a little bit of a development arc because he's sort of he's very eager to please and he wants to you know make those connections but he's also very convinced of his own solutions and his own way of doing things and and you're right Paul and you point that out I I do think this is Worf's way to kind of reinforce the idea no you're here to learn from us like that's that's what you know we'll learn from each other but you're here to observe how a federation starship operates um and that's his way of kind of you know showing him the chain of command like literally (laughs) (laughs) it feels like he is actually going to break out a chain at some point that's right (laughs) well yeah and it's also interesting because mendon can't really be faulted for it um because even when it comes out like he knew about this and didn't say anything he's like well it's the benzite way to not present something like this until you have all the uh, information and solution on it um picard response is basically well that's not our way so you know in the future do it this other way but you know it, he's not wrong which is a really interesting part of this that that nobody's really at fault here um and that's sort of what a cultural exchange like this um, really pans out, right? People can do things that you think are wrong, um, and it's not that they are, it's that they have a different cultural standard, which, again, is really touching on some good ideas in this, this storyline. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That that, And at no point, I mean, even saying wrong is really kind of like not the way the episode frames it. You know, there's that, mm-hmm. there's that conversation that, you know, again, Worf and Riker were having about, like, 
their chain of command and how succession is handled um and and it's literally by murder you know (laughs) and and Riker is surprised but he doesn't call it out like because that's I mean it's just an amazing amount of respect for uh okay this is how Klingons do things and like Worf even chimes in and says you know the Klingon system has operated successfully for centuries you know so it's like yeah, there's never any sort of anyone standing on the high ground saying, you know, how could you? That's wrong. It's just, it's really a lesson on perspectives. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's amazing coming from 1989. Like, it's just, it's it's incredible. <laughs> like, really, when you, when you think about that, that way. Um, Maybe we should adopt that kind of thing here. <laughs> well, I did have that thought. <laughs> Uh, as I was watching this, I was like, this is this is an episode uh, for all time, but this is an episode especially needed now, <laughs> right? <laughs> the idea that someone who disagrees with you is not an idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a different way of doing things may not necessarily be wrong. Um, yeah, that I, I did have that thought for sure. Well, and there's there's small differences too, right? Even in, in um, that opening scene where Riker gets all the foods, um, presumably the um, I forget the thing that is served um, um, live. Gach. 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 Um, so so he's presumably eating it there, not live, um, mm-hmm. because that's what like on the books or something when he just reads about Klingon um, cuisine, it just says, "Well, they eat gach," and then. He, he interprets it his own way and it's not until he actually goes there and is in, in their culture uh, that he realizes oh there, there's some more subtlety to this that that it's not just preparing this dish the way we would uh, but they actually eat it live and well I guess I'll try it <laughs> like well and you've you've provided a nice uh, segue into that mess hall scene um, that mess hall scene after Riker has officially transferred over after the ship's part ways and, and, and Riker's being introduced to his duties and the crew and what have you. Um, I think every single piece of that mess hall scene, you you just you get so much out of it. It, it gives you an episode's worth of content in about 10 minutes. Yeah, they're um, not wasting words there. No, it's um, you learn so much about um Klingon culture, the way that they relate to each other, how Riker can think on his feet. Um there I mean <laughs> there there are scenes in there where um I think most people who aren't Riker and this is, you know, how how much I think of like how this episode is written and how well it's, it all falls together. I think you put a lot of other crew members in that scene and they would just be terribly uncomfortable and not be able to like roll with the punches oh, as yeah. well as Riker. Just did. terrified. Yeah. I mean, when, when Riker was going over there, like o- O'Brien was like, oh, I wouldn't want to go. Like, I'm <laughs> scared. You're not scared? What the hell? Yeah. And, and it establishes that Riker's uh, like hard ass and like willing to s- see any challenge. And that Chief O'Brien's kind of a pansy. So, <laughs> when you get right down to it. Well, I don't, I don't know how much I'm going to sit here and stand you, uh, you know, bad mouth and uh, my man Chief O'Brien, but, uh, <laughs> but okay, point taken. Um, yeah. But the, the, I think particularly the, um, the way in which Jonathan Frakes delivers the response where O'Brien just is, is kind of amazed and he says, you're not afraid, are you? And his response is no i'm not you know with no. with a full grin but also like disbelieving him like why would i be afraid like you just learn so much about how he's taking it seriously but he's not letting it rattle him and it's uh right. 
it's really yeah it's really cool the the scene <laughs> the, the the point at which um <laughs> the i think it's his second in command says you know pointing to the two female klingon officers saying you know they're wondering how you would handle them and you can see in his face for a moment he's like what am i getting into but he immediately pivots and says one or both and oh, the yeah. whole room erupts <laughs> in laughter it's like that is the perfect response to a yeah. to a mess hall full of Klingons. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> kind of like he was pulling his past from Beardless Riker and being a little bit pervy and just totally <laughs> <laughs> brings he, it home. <laughs> he was remembering the virtual harp ladies and <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Oh don't um, make me remember Beardless Riker. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't want to go back. Um, there's a heart to heart that happens with, um, Riker, the second in command and, and Mm -hmm. the other Klingon that they're talking to where, where they get pretty serious. Um, amazingly serious afterwards. Uh, the line that I wrote down was, um, when talking about, uh, I think it's Clag was his name is the second in command. We'll go with it. Um, he's talking about how his father, uh, you know, was captured escaped but now waits for death um and they have that whole i mean that in and of itself is is so much about klingon culture the idea that you die on your feet that you're a warrior that making it to old age is not what any of them are looking for um all of that stuff so informative about klingons and so true to what you know they will be for the duration of of star trek again another another thing where, where I was pretty blown away. And then the quote, a Klingon is his work, not his family. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that was, that'll even foreshadow a little bit of, of Worf. And um, when, when he has a son, when Alexander mm-hmm. shows up, I mean, there's just, you can mine so much out, out of this episode. And it, it's interesting, right? Because we've, we've seen other places where um, they've kind of stumbled on these opens. Um, no, the Ferengi, right? Notably. Where yeah. They, they yeah. pitched an idea and then it's like, ooh, this doesn't really track. Uh, so let's kind of really just abandon it for a while and come back much, much later. Um, and then some other places where they've had things that didn't really track, but they, they stuck with them. Um, notably, all the um, stuff about, um, wow, why can I not think of what Troy is? A um, Betazoid. Say Bajoran, and that Betazoid. Betazoid. Wow. Um, <laughs> all, all the stuff about the Betazoids that, that came up in the wedding episode of, of season one um, that they stuck with forever, even though it doesn't really track in any, any meaningful way. Um, but again, here they they stick with everything here because it it tracks so well, and yeah, yeah, you're right that this this act in the mess hall is just a whole episode in and of itself, for sure. There, um, t- to this is interesting. I, I was when I was prepping for this episode to that scene that we were just talking about with um, uh, when they sit down for the meal. Uh, Maurice Hurley actually said about that scene, um that uh, the the Klingon says he's surprised at Riker because he has a sense of humor. Riker looks at him and says, you know, son of a gun, I was thinking the same thing. Um, He thought that that was kind of the heart of it, right? The idea that these two cultures, you know, each had this kind of strange, distorted image of each other. And when they really sit down, break bread, and just kind of start laughing, um, there's understanding there. Um, 
and and I feel like that's what makes this episode work. And to piggyback on what you're talking about, Paul, the idea that like, you know, yeah, I think that's what has led to a lot of those stumbles, right? They'll set yeah. up a culture. They'll set up like, well, they're this, I guess, and they do this and they act this way, but they don't, they don't have a way to actually make them feel authentic. And I would say in a word, that's what all of the interactions in this episode feel like. All mm-hmm. of them are authentic. You get a sense for the fact that these are people from very different places with very different perspectives. But at the end of the day, they they are able to find some kind of equilibrium. And, um, and from a from a storytelling perspective, too, it's it's really well done in that. I mean, Riker is basically the protagonist of this arc. Right. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. and he doesn't know much about Klingon. So he's learning this along with the viewer. This is the vehicle by which we get to see Klingon culture through the eyes of this protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's sitting there in that room thinking that same thing, right? That they have a sense of humor because that's what the viewer is also thinking. Um, if we're in that chair, Riker's chair saying, oh, I'm surprised that the Klingons have a sense of humor. And, and for them to then say that to him and um, have him be shocked is also the situation the viewer finds himself in, right? To also be shocked and say, oh, that same thought I was just having is the same thought they're having, and we're actually not that different. Beyond that, that right. simple idea of we're both humorous, we both have the same thoughts that we didn't think about each other, which is just again so well written here mm-hmm. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that it's it's shocking they it's shocking they wrote that this after some of the other things they've written this this season. <laughs> like this is where all the writers were when the strike was going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're all on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> So Baker, when um, when you think about this episode and and you're looking back on it, like is is there is there a thing that for you like that is the thing that keeps me coming back to this episode, or that's the thing that I I hold out that like I really like the most about this episode? Uh, I think what we just talked about in the mess hall was mm-hmm. like a really awesome scene in itself, and like yeah, it could you could have whole seasons devoted to like Klingon interactions, but like also you know pairing that against what we know of Klingons already in that in Worf where he's like not a typical Klingon either you know you see this Klingon figure as like this you know giant stoic like doesn't really show emotions other than anger sometimes uh and like seeing Klingons totally not being like that is uh is really interesting yeah yeah it it, I did come away with this that um after seeing an episode like this, um, coming back to Worf on the Enterprise, I feel like you almost have a better perspective of him and what he must be going through to um, to live in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Because the takeaway of this is that Worf's every normal day is this one day that Riker just lived. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And th- and that that is something that he has had not only just through his career in Starfleet, but because of, you know, what we know of him at this point, that he was adopted by human parents, he was raised uh, in a human culture, that this is his entire life. And so, yeah, I think that's a really, like, eye-opening thing to, to consider that, like, you know, Riker was able to roll with the punches, but, you know, he also was only there for, like, a day or two. Um, right. Whereas, yeah, this is Worf's entire existence, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it says a lot globally about culture, right? And just... yep culture all caps full stop yeah <laughs> yes exactly yeah. 
Um, so the the element that kind of ties this whole thing together, the the stuff that's happening on the ship with Mendon, uh, you know, Riker and his exchange program, is this um, this element of uh, of it's actually a subatomic bacterial infection, I guess is what they call it, but it, it's a corrosive <laughs> element. It eats away at the the hulls of ships. Right. Um, the things that I liked about it is that they didn't get it. They didn't fall into the trap where they they defined it too much. It's just like. Eh, space-borne bacteria. It, yeah. It eats yeah. stuff. Yeah, and it wasn't trying to be, like, a secondary, like, oh, we're racing against the clock because we're going to die. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they were like, oh, we figured out how to clean it off, and it's gone now. Yep. Yeah. Now we just have to find the Klingons. I thought it was interesting, though. Data uh, scanned it, and it, it was had, like, one scan of it, and then said something like, it's doubling every <laughs> blank or something. I noted Man, that, a, too. You took some cross-sectional data there that, like, how do you, how do you know how fast it's doubling? Yeah, yeah I, I, I wrote, Data sure knows a bunch about this bacteria, comma, suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that was kind of, yeah, I, I noticed that, too. I also think the idea of a, a tunneling neutrino beam, I, I was wondering if... if as a neutrino beam, it was going to tunnel more or less than regular neutrinos, which <laughs> exceptionally non-interactive. That's um, I'm going to take your word for that one, Paul. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought too. I mean, neutrinos, totally. right? I mean, we're going to have a, we're we're having a science corner, right? The, oh <laughs> no! What have I Start done? With, she was neutrinos. A I'm sorry. So neutrinos science corner with Paul. We have a, a, a lot of neutrinos. <laughs> The neutrinos we interact with or, or fail to interact with are, are mostly produced by the sun. Um, and, and the whole idea, you'll see this a lot of different places, but if you hold out your hand, um, I don't know, the, uh, I'm, uh, lots of them on the order of millions or billions, I forget the order of magnitude, are passing through your hand right now. Um, and oh never my God. <laughs> right because they're exceptionally non-interactive particles. Baker so, got so the way that you <laughs> oh no, too many neutrinos. <laughs> the way they detect them generally, they'll build detectors under giant uh, ice sheets and things like that, and many many feet of lead and concrete to slow them down enough to uh, to to interact with them. But hmm. that's why I'm saying a tunneling neutrino beam. Not sure, not sure how it would work, but <laughs> it sounds cool enough, right? It sounds cool. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they, they nailed all the character development uh, that came up short on the science consults. <laughs> that's, uh, that's... Hey man, but it's the same way. I'm not going to say it's wrong, know. right? I'm not going to say that a tunneling neutrino beam wouldn't work. I don't know what it is, so maybe it would. <laughs> right? So they were vague enough, which is kind of the point you were making. They were vague oh. enough that it could still be right. I have a question. How does the Enterprise shoot itself because isn't the tunneling neutrino beam coming out of its like the ventral deflector. opening? <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. good point. My hope is that that would be a shuttlecraft uh, deployed mm. to to do that. But they could have just flown close to a star, you know. That, that's it. Look, a star. It's generating a tunneling neutrino beam. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> da, da, da. They just toss a toss a, a lens out in space. <laughs> right. Right. Glass. right. Yeah. Exactly. They um, set up a series of mirrors. Maybe it's a real we scratch your back, uh, you scratch ours kind of thing, and maybe they're expecting the Klingon bird of prey to turn around and do that for them. Uh, uh, yeah. They yeah. could have done a saucer separation. They... And each, <laughs> half, each half cleans the other half. <laughs> We're getting uh, getting a little weird here. Um, right. That's a good question, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the thing that I did like about um, that the thing that I caught that was clever with the, the bacterial infection was 
it it they tied Mendon at his science station making a cultural error as the reason that the Klingons were motivated to attack because what did Mendon do? He noticed it, he scanned it, he made detailed scans of the yep. the thing on on the Klingon ship. The Klingons then turned around and interpreted that as the Enterprise somehow infecting their hull. So I thought that yeah. was like a nice little clever way to like use that as an element to really tie those two things together. And, uh, you know, Nick, to piggyback on your point, I also did really appreciate the fact that like it was motivation for the conclusion, but it wasn't an arbitrary, nonsensical ticking clock. I guess right. they threw out the idea that the bird of prey was going to be like eaten in like eight hours or something. I, I, but they didn't really like harp on it enough for me to be like, oh, here's another arbitrary shot yeah. clock. You know, and it wasn't it, on the verge. It wasn't like parts of it were falling apart. against right. the clock, you know? yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. But, but yeah, that, that's another good point on that idea of culture, right? That that uh, having Mendon do that and then have it misinterpreted by a different culture, um, two completely different cultures, both non-human, mm-hmm. um, then places them into a situation where they could end up, all of them dead. Um, that that mm-hmm. Yeah, you could have a lot of problems arise from cultural misunderstandings that aren't just dealt with with dialogue yep which again says so much about this episode yep from again 1989 yeah um so i want to ask this who wants to volunteer to explain riker's plan uh at the end of the episode okay i mean i guess he assumed that they would beam him aboard if he activated his emergency transponder thing? Yes. He just, like, made that guess? Yes. Is that what you're getting? Yeah, but you also, I only it? caught this on the second uh, go-around. He um, he also um, suggested, he, he, made a, he made a tactical suggestion, which the captain uh, took, that they should close to short distance to engage. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was also within transport range. So right. he not only duped the crew into getting close, he then activated the transponder in plain sight, knowing that they would see it and handed it. So, like, I, I didn't... I, I thought it was kind of clever, but then I, I thought it was really clever once I put all those pieces together, once I realized, no, he's literally manipulating them into getting into transport range. Um, Did he know that the captain was going to take his little blinky thing? I think that was his plan. But I think he thought one of two things would happen. Either I will get transported away or whomever I hand this to will get transported away and it'll probably be the captain. Um, That's kind of what I took from it. It was a little bit of a gambit, but I thought it was I thought it was pretty clever. Like I thought it was. I I mean, he could have cut it a little safer, right? If if he had said thirty five thousand. Right. You would have had a little yeah. bit more play there. Um, yeah. Right. True. Or if O'Brien was like, oh, wait, mm, getting a little bit of interference. Let me try to clean that up. And it's like, yeah. oh, ship destroyed. <laughs> ba-choo, ba-choo, boom. Exactly. O'Brien and your perfectionism. Yeah. Curse you, O'Brien. Paul. What if the captain had gotten beamed to the transporter room and O'Brien was just sitting there with his thumb up his butt <laughs> and he just got vaporized? O'Brien would have just transported him somewhere else really quickly i bet that would have been i kind of want to see that scene now actually like just o'brien awkwardly talking to the captain of the (laughs) of the klingon (laughs) ship uh hi uh klingon so you're like uh you like blood pies eh (laughs) more of a more of a shepherd's pie man myself 
<laughs> they must have they must have shields around the teleporter, right? The, on the transport, they do. Right? Yep, they do. That he could probably <laughs> turn on really quick as soon as he saw that a Klingon was materializing in front of him. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And then you're right; it would just be him in, in a in a force field <laughs> having a conversation. <laughs> so uh, so gah, that's uh, pretty much worms, eh? You know, yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I kind of want that episode now. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> so Brian talking to people. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Mark Wahlberg talks with animals of the Star Trek universe. It's just <laughs> Chief O'Brien talks to other cultures. You know. Yep. Yeah. That could be fun. Um. Yeah. I just. Uh, I do have this. I do have a. Um, Paul had a science corner moment, and I don't know if this mm-hmm. is too much to also wedge in a ship nerd moment. Burnsy ship nerd moment. Yeah. Uh, oh, so man, this... isolate that audio. And... <laughs> <laughs> That'll be it forever. Yep. <laughs> so that's the one. That's the take. Thank you, Nick. You're um, <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about Klingon starships. Um, because they don't even refer to this ship, which is clearly a Klingon bird of prey. Uh, as a bird of prey, they refer to it as a Klingon cruiser. Um, I- I'd like to take this point, <laughs> this moment to point out that does anybody know how big of a bird of prey uh, is supposed to be? Like, this is all you, as, man. As big as that one this. is? Uh, no. The answer is whichever size the plot demands that it be. Um, oh, cool. Awesome. Be- Wait, so then I was right. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, because um, so the Klingon Bird of Prey model gets used all the time, mostly because it looks really cool, and they already have had one built since Star Trek Three. so there you go. <laughs> um, but apparently birds of prey um, range in size from anywhere to, you know, being at least appreciably similar in size to a, to a Galaxy-class starship to as small or smaller than the USS Defiant from uh, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So basically, a small short-range scout all the way up to an actual full-size warship. Uh, so that's just their name for ships, then. Yeah, but what's funny is they never establish... They don't do a good job of establishing the fact that those <laughs> those clearly can't be the same ship, even though they look identical. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if you Google Klingon Bird of Prey, uh, and then you go down the rabbit hole really fast... Um, You'll really fast or a long time? Well, okay, yeah, the opposite. <laughs> For a long time. You'll find people doing all kinds of mental backflips to try to retcon how this one class of ship cannot be anywhere close to, like, scale. Um, well, it's easy, Burns. Okay. They're clearly from the same geostructure. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been the Starship <laughs> oh, moment right there. <laughs> <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> Boy, that's the answer to every starship question now, too. Man, yeah. it just opens up a whole world of possibilities. Yeah, the um, xastrisscientia.org. Um, if you Google um, Klingon Bird of Prey size, it's like one of the first hits. Scroll through that, and they do a- an amazing job of talking about all of the different sizes that you'll see. Um, it is one of the things that um, is is particularly hard to do in a, in a space series, and um, maybe one of the things that just broadly Star Trek does not do great is is really giving people a scale of the ships. Right, yep. of the mm-hmm. size of them um, because even if two ships are next to each other in space um, 
you don't know which one is in the foreground and which one is in the background and you're right you, your eyes do all sort of mental gymnastics to say what that size is and it's really hard unless you have a ship on a planet yep um yep which they almost which they never do they hardly uh, unless they're, until voyage unless they're really. crashing it into a planet but yeah um yeah it, it's really hard to get that across there's uh there's an image here that I'm looking at where they're talking about the wingspan of a bird of prey and uh, they have five different sizes listed here <laughs> that they've extrapolated from different series episodes movies. They have one as small as 50 meters across wingspan and one that is close to 700 meters. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so there you go. the The retcon solution is that all of these are simply different classes of. Maybe it's like Voltron, and the smaller <laughs> ones just. <laughs> that's that's got to be what it is. That's that's yeah. that's what that's what we'll do. Just look harder at it next time when you, when you see a big one. If it's a whole bunch of small ones, it's just yeah. kind of flying. Which all class in forms the head? I would also uh, I would also like to point out that there uh, uh, in such a fantastic episode, there was only one moment that r- nearly ripped me out of the fiction, and it was when they was it, s- was it Pulaski? Well. Two moments that oh, nearly pulled me say, out of the fiction. Another good, good thing of this episode: only one Pulaski moment, and she was not she bad was, in that. She was actually she wasn't bad. She was no, good. She wasn't bad. Yeah, I was like, okay, I can deal with this. Um, no, they said uh, they were talking about powering photon torpedoes and phasers on a Klingon ship, and I was like, phasers? Come on! Everyone knows <laughs> that Klingon starships, much like Romulan vessels, use disruptor-style weapons. Bush League. Mm-hmm. Bush League, guys. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Get your stuff. That was together. a revisit to the mini space nerd, space nerd moment. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Next, you're going to tell me they're cleaning this stuff off with a tunneling neutrino beam. This is ridiculous. God. Ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, realistically, I would I would feel worse if they had said, like, tunneling proton beam. <laughs> that, would, that, would, that would realistically make less sense. Let's start a letter writing campaign. <laughs> to yes. 1989. To 1989. <laughs> Okay, on that note, I think we've uh, covered pretty much everything there is <laughs> in this episode. Does anybody <laughs> have anything else that uh, they'd like to get to that we haven't got to? Or uh, Just Riker's total swagger when he asked Picard to surrender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just like leaning in his chair like, yeah, yeah, surrender. Yeah. I-, I think that's a thing that he's rehearsed in the mirror, right? <laughs> like, that's not the first time he said he's asked Captain Picard to surrender. <laughs> like, right? That's, just, that's the thing where he's like, yeah, one of these days I'm going to sit in that chair. You're going to surrender. Speaking of sitting in chairs, I, I'm sad. Unless I missed it, I, I don't think he did a Riker maneuver in this episode. That would have been the only thing not, that could have made no. this better. No, there is not when a... When he stepped into that captain's chair. <laughs> it's because the, the Klingon chairs do not accommodate yeah, the Riker the, maneuver. Tall back. That's right. <laughs> tall backs. Tall backs. <laughs> so I think... Um, can we all pretty much agree that this is a this is a win all the way across? Normally we go around and 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 say why, but I mean I think we we've all been gushing yeah, I mean, we, about we this just, episode. We just right? finished writing like a half hour love letter to this episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a watch, right? This unless is... Baker, unless you want to pull out a hail mary right here and just <laughs> hate this yeah, episode, sucks. You never watch. Don't it. even watch it. <laughs> the racial overtones were too great. Not in this century. Episode is racist. Sorry. Racist. Um, no, I loved it. It's great. Yeah, this is this is uh, I think this is one of those episodes that just um, you know I think we just got done talking about outrageous Okana and I think I had said that that was an episode that I remembered you know more fondly than when I actually sat down to watch it. 
Uh, this one was the exact opposite. I always knew I liked this episode, but it wasn't until I was sitting down rewatching it again that I remembered, holy crap, this is why I love this episode. Um, so I think this one yeah, w- yeah. works on two levels. You know, you'll, this you'll one, love it now. You'll love it later. Yeah. Yeah. In like seven years when we, when we finish this and look back, I, I could see this one being, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to put it, but you know, top 20 would not surprise me Yeah, to look back on this and say, yeah, this is really up there. Yeah, it's just so amazing to see them get so many different pieces correct and just pitch perfect correct and to have that all just fall into place. So it's um, it's it has surprised me because a lot of times the bad ones are really fun to talk about. But this really good one uh, has been really, really fun to talk about, too. So, Nick, before I, I we... blame Baker, I blame Baker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're having too much Sorry. fun, sir. Try to tone it <laughs> down. My bad. <laughs> If um, do you have anything in particular on the internet uh, or in the social media spaces or anything that uh, you would like people to know you for uh, a Twitter account, to follow Facebook, anything like that? Uh, yeah, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm just at Nick Baker. Very nice, very nice. And uh, I always appreciate the fact that you uh, tweet all sorts of either funny or interesting things or sometimes just really cool stuff about tech. So see what yeah. uh, Nick is doing there. So um, check it out. It has been fun to have you here, sir. Thanks, and I hope we will see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely. So until next time, I'm Jason. And I'm Paul. And always remember that your gach must be served fresh. Uh, still moving. Gach is always best when served live. <laughs>